Well, if you would keep your Bible open or your bulletin open to that passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. We have been walking through 1 Peter since the 1st of January. And I'll remind you that uh, Peter said at the end of this letter that he had written this letter uh, to declare and to exhort to his readers the true grace of God, the real grace of God. And so we've been thinking together uh, with Peter's letter uh, what it means to declare the real grace of God to ourselves uh, through the gospel and to hear Peter do that to us as we live the real grace of God in our real lives. Um, And we've come to this place starting last week where Peter um, asks us to do a strange thing of all the ways that Peter could have told us that we would proclaim the excellencies of Jesus uh, to the world, he asks us to be submissive people. So four times in the rest of his letter, he says to be subject. Last week we looked at be subject uh, to governing authorities. This week, be subject uh, to masters, or in our case, employers. Two weeks from now, we're going to take a break next week, and Nathan's going to preach for us, but um, two weeks from now, we're going to look at the passage in chapter 3 where he, sa- he asked wives, believing wives of unbelieving husbands to be subject. You can pray for me about that one. That's going to be a tough, a tough one. Um, and then later in chapter 5, he says, be subject to your elders in the church. So... This strange way of showing the world Jesus by submitting. Um, And that's where we are this morning. So would you pray with me as we dive in? Father, would you help me, help us as we come to your word? Uh, Some of which is is very difficult to to understand, especially in our context. Help us by your Spirit to hear your Spirit speak to us through these words um, of Peter. Uh, But most of all, help us to do what Peter, I think, most wants us to do, and that is to see Jesus, who was subject to you and to others for our sake. Help us to see Jesus, the suffering servant that Isaiah 53 so beautifully Uh, describes. Uh, Help us to see Jesus, we ask, in his name. Amen. Last week I gave you a little pop quiz. Uh, This week is a different sort of pop quiz. I'm I'm going to uh, try something different here. I'm going to sing to you part of a famous line from famous songs, and I want you to finish it for me. All right? Are you with me? I I know you're missing an hour of sleep, but you can do this. How about this one from the Beatles? I'll start. You finish with me. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. Good. See? So far, you're getting 100%. How about this one from, uh, you know, everybody's favorite, Lover Boy? Everybody's working for the... Good, for the weekend, nice. 
So far, 100%. How about uh, East Tennessee's uh, queen of, of kindness, Dolly Parton? Working nine to five, what a way to make a living, barely getting by. It's all taken and no giving. Good. Y'all are, y'all are getting there. And finally, last but not least, if you live in Tennessee, hopefully you'll know this famous song by Johnny Paycheck. Take this job and... That's right. I ain't working here no more. All right, so, so why do we have such problems with work and especially with our bosses? Hmm, everybody's just working for the weekend because, you know, work during the week is not really worth living for uh, because you've been working like a dog. But it's your boss's fault, right? Um, and um, it's, he's just taken and not given or... Uh, they're, they're just cruel taskmasters. So you can tell them what they can do with their job. But, you know, when we come to this letter from Peter, it's kind of not funny. Because what these people were dealing with, and I, I know that some of you are living through some excruciating work situations. Some of you have been the victim of horrible bosses. Um, But it's sobering to read what Peter says here, because some of the Christians to whom Peter was writing this letter back in the first century were not just employees, they were slaves. Listen to what he says, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters. That word servants is um, the word oikates. It was a domestic slave, a household slave. Be subject to your masters. That's the word master there is the word despotes. That's where we get the word despot, a ruler from. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect or fear. Not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust, and that word is unjust, it's actually scolios, it's, it's where we get the word scoliosis, you know, for a crooked spine, so not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the crooked masters. Historians have said that between a quarter and a half of the population of the Roman Empire in those days were slaves. They were owned by their masters. Uh, Most commonly, slaves were acquired through war, through the conquering of other nations. And they were bought and sold like property. Um, The Roman Empire was built on the back of slave labor. Many of these slaves were laborers in mines or on farms, But some of them were also teachers, doctors, government workers. And even these oikates, these house slaves, who lived in the master's household and they served their master and his family in all kinds of roles, tutors, doctors. 
But make no mistake, they were slaves. Aristotle was famous for calling them human tools. This was the attitude toward slaves in that day. They were compare, he compared them to work animals. In fact, he said that to be friends with one slave is like being friends with an inanimate object. And so Peter tells these Christian slaves to be subject to their masters. And I, I just want to address this briefly because I don't, this isn't the thrust of what Peter is after, but it makes us wonder, so what, what did the apostles have to say about slavery? I mean, what was the impact that Christianity had on slavery? One, comment, one commentary I read said this, slavery was accepted as a social reality. It was, it was when you hear Peter and Paul write to these churches, they're accepting that there are going to be slaves, and per, perhaps some of these house churches had more slaves than not slaves in them. It was accepted as a social reality, which primitive Christianity was not in a po- position to abolish externally. That this was not a, uh, a democratic society. They didn't have the ability to abolish this at that time. But among Christians, the apostles knew that this status of slave could be overcome by brotherhood in Christ. There was a way that slavery could be defeated. As another commentator said, the revolutionary nature of the early church is contained in the concept of being in Christ. And so the result of slaves and masters who believe in Jesus being in Christ, there is on the one hand a spiritual equality between slaves and others. As Paul said in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Imagine as that identity began to take root in Christian slaves and Christian masters and Christian freedmen and women, that we are one in Christ. And on the other hand, there was the apostles' uh, exhortation for responsible behavior within the existing structures in which Christians lived. Paul said in Ephesians 6, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Sounds like Peter. Masters, so he speaks to the slaves and says, Obey them as you would obey Christ. But to the masters who are believers, he says, do the same to your slaves. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So the apostles were, were targeting people in both statuses uh, with the gospel truth that Jesus is our master. And we have to remember that this, this letter was written to house churches. This is, they didn't gather in buildings like this at that time. They gathered in one another's homes. And so these uh, homes were made up of households that included both slaves 
and masters who are believers. And, and then we get the example of Paul writing to Philemon. I encourage you maybe this afternoon to find that little letter called Philemon. It's just one chapter, about 25 verses. And read this story. Paul was in Rome, and he ran across this guy named Onesimus, who was a runaway slave who belonged to Philemon. And under Paul's ministry, Onesimus came to know Jesus. And Paul sent him back to his master, whom he knew was a believer. And this is what Paul said to the Christian master about his now new brother, slave. Paul said, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while. Perhaps this is why he was allowed to run away from you in God's providence. That you may have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, Paul says, receive him as you would receive me. Imagine how that kind of attitude towards slaves began to change. And in the centuries to come, uh, it would change the minds and that Christian ethic would ultimately destroy Roman slavery from the inside out. But, but let's get back to First Peter. The fact is that these folks were slaves. So this is what struck me this week. They're already slaves, so aren't they already subject to their masters? How can Peter tell slaves who are already legally and physically subjected to their masters to be subject to their masters? Why would he, why would he say that? It sounds like he's saying they have a choice. If he commands them to be subject to their masters, it sounds like he's saying they have a choice to do that. Even his suggestion that they not only submit to good and gentle masters, but also to crooked masters, sounds like they have a choice to submit or not to submit. But the truth is, as slaves who are Christians, there is a choice they have. Remember what Peter had just told them. We read, Kevin just read a few minutes ago from verse 16. He had just told them a a few sentences before this in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. So they may not have a choice about being legally and physically subject to their masters, but they do have a choice as to how they will be subject to their masters. They can choose what kind of subjection they will offer. Slaves who belong to Jesus have a freedom from sin and a slavery to their Lord Jesus that overrides and undergirds their slavery to their earthly masters. So, Peter is telling them that as a free people in Christ, they do have a choice to subject themselves to their earthly masters in a way that only slaves of Jesus can subject themselves to anyone. 
And so the question is, what does that look like? What does it look like to subject yourself to an earthly master as a person who is both free from slavery to sin and yet a slave to Jesus? And what can Peter's instructions to the Christian slaves teach us this morning as Christian employees? Whatever it can teach a slave who can be beaten by the man who owns them, surely it can teach us who serve some horrible bosses. He goes on in verse 19. This is what it looks like. For this is a gracious thing, he says, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Notice that this little, these two verses kind of are sandwiched with, this is a gracious thing when, you're mind, when mindful of God, you endure suffering while doing good. And then it closes with that same thought. When you do good and you suffer for it and endure, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. First thought that helps us is that we serve in the presence of Jesus, who is our suffering servant. Peter says we're to be mindful of God in verse 19 and then to recognize that we serve in the sight of God in verse 20. It's the same concept. The master's eyes we are, uh, we are most concerned about watching us as we work are God's eyes, not our boss's. We're to be mindful of God more than we're mindful of our supervisor. We are to be serving in the sight of God more than we serve in the sight of our supervisor. And that's what Paul said in Colossians 3. He said it this way. Bondservants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so when Christians serve in the workplace, they are more mindful of the eyes of Jesus than the eyes of their bosses. We're more aware of the presence of Jesus than the presence of our supervisors. Whew. Okay, well, let's keep going. What does he say next? We not only serve in the presence of Jesus, we serve to please Jesus. Twice, in verses 19 and 20, Peter tells Christian slaves that their endurance of the suffering they experience as they serve crooked masters is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That means it's a pleasing or favorable thing in God's sight. What he's saying is that God will be pleased with our suffering service in the same way he is pleased with the suffering service of Jesus. Though God does frown upon the suffering itself because he also frowned upon the suffering of his son and called it evil, he smiles at the Christ-like heart of the one who suffers 
and, endure, and endures in obedience to Jesus. It's as if God says to the watching world, to the onlooking angels, to unbelieving masters and bosses and co-workers, look, look at how my grace has changed that heart. That they can endure unjust suffering like Jesus. So when Christians serve in the workplace, we're aiming to please Jesus more than our bosses. We are more motivated by the smile of Jesus than the smile of our supervisors. Wow. Okay, so Peter, what does this submission actually look like in real life? And at this point, Jesus, uh, Peter answers this question. What does it really look like? Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. He answers this question by turning to Jesus. And he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. That word example uh, literally means under... Writing, not underwriting like a, like insurance or something, but writing under something. It's, it's picturing, do you remember maybe some of you in grade school, I don't know if they do this anymore, but they did it in this building, I guarantee you, where the teacher would give you a sheet of alphabet letters that were perfectly formed, and you would take a sheet of your paper and put it over top of that paper, and you could see through, and you could see the pattern underneath, and you would trace carefully so that you could learn to make those letters yourself? That's what this word example means. Jesus has left you an example so that you could lay your life on top of it and trace your life to his life. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here's what it looked like. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That's what it looks like. So we serve according to the pattern of Jesus, the suffering servant. Um, That pattern looks like this. Verse 22. He committed no sin. So when you suffer unjustly under your horrible boss, don't sin. Well, that takes all the fun out of it. What does that mean? If Jesus said that the essence of obedience was to love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself, that vertical and horizontal dimension of life that takes the shape of a cross, then The essence of sin is to not love God, but to love yourself, and to not love your neighbor, but instead to love yourself. The essence of sin is a me-first life that looks at God and others and everything else and says, no, me first. So when you submit in the workplace, don't do it with a me-first heart. Don't do it just because you know Yeah, I hate this boss, but at least I'll get a promotion. I'm going to submit because it's going to make me look good. Don't sin in your submission. Let it be genuine. 
And on top of that, he goes on to say, neither was deceit found in Jesus' mouth. So when we submit, we don't deceive. It's not a false or a fake or a feigned submission. It's genuine, it's real, it's authentic. He goes on verse 23, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. That word revile means to abuse or insult or rail against or slander or to vilify someone. When Jesus was abused and insulted and railed against and slandered and vilified, he did not return in kind. He did not speak in a way that disparaged those who disparaged him. So if we're going to submit in the workplace according to the pattern of Jesus, that means we can't talk about our bosses the way they've talked about us. I can't disparage him or her. I can't revile. I can't throw back the, the vile speech that they've thrown at me. And then he says, in verse 24, when he suffered, he did not threaten. He did not threaten. He didn't, he didn't warn is what that word threaten means. And you can imagine Jesus. Uh, he had several opportunities, didn't he? There was one opportunity where he said, you know, I could call a legion of angels right now and they would come to my rescue. But he didn't. He didn't threaten. He didn't warn. You better watch out. You don't know who you're dealing with. There's an old hymn that I love that says this. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. The man who could threaten better than anybody didn't do it for us. So those are all negative Commands, don't sin, don't deceive, don't revile when you're reviled, don't threaten when you suffer. What, what am I supposed to do? He said, Jesus, instead of those things, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself to his father, who is also judge and will one day make all things right. God will judge your unjust bosses. All sin will be judged. Either the one who commits it will pay for it or Jesus will have paid for it for them. And again, Jesus is living out what I said a few weeks ago, I think is the theme verse of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That verse summarizes Peter's letter because it summarizes the life of Jesus. He suffered according to God's will, and while he did so, he entrusted his soul to his faithful creator, his father, who is judge. So that's what it looks like to serve in the pattern of Jesus in your workplace. But the bar is too high, isn't it? Actually, probably better to say the bar is too low because I'm not willing to stoop that low to be like Jesus. How on earth can we possibly submit like this? Even to good bosses, we don't do this. <laughs> do we? I mean, I, I want to stop here and say, if you're looking back on your life and going, wow, if, that was the, if Jesus is the standard for how I'm, I was supposed to treat those in my workplace that were over me, I'm in trouble. Because I've already, I've already failed on all counts. And I'm continuing to fail. So we've got two problems here. What do we do with the ways we've already failed to serve like Jesus has served? And what do we do to have the power to serve as we've been told to serve? And Peter tells us, we can, we can do this only because he has done it for us. He goes on, and he's quoting Isaiah 53, which we read this morning. Peter quotes Isaiah 53 four times in this passage and alludes to it several other times. In fact, the only reason we know that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus is because of this right here, because Peter connects it to Jesus. Nowhere else, nobody else specifically in the New Testament says that Jesus was the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. This is the passage that tells us it's true. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here's how you're forgiven for your insubordination to Jesus and to your bosses. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we serve in the pardon of Jesus. We can serve um, as forgiven servants. Ever since Adam and Eve first rebelled, we humans have set ourselves up to be the true masters. We have set ourselves up to be the lords over the Lord Jesus. But we are illegitimate masters who we participated in the cruel and crooked treatment of Jesus. We treated him as an unworthy and disobedient slave. We beat on him. We spit on him. We mocked him. We nailed him to a cross of wood. 
we are the crooked masters, quote-unquote masters. And yet he, the master, who is innocent of God, uh, who is innocent in God's sight, who is always mindful of God when he served, he subjected himself for our sake to cruelty. Jesus suffered as the servant so that we could be free from our insubordination. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. By his wounds you have been healed. Let's just stop and worship him for a minute. Will you sing with me? Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon. With his blood, hallelujah, what a Savior. Friends, you have to know and trust and live in this Jesus, this suffering servant. It's the only way you can know the pardon for your insubordination. And Peter says it's the only way you can know the power to live to righteousness as he has died to make you live. How do we live with the power to submit? Because Jesus, the shepherd of our souls, the one to whom all angels, authorities, and powers are subjected, because he ransomed us from slavery to ourselves, because he lives in us, now we can live that cross-shaped life of righteousness, of loving God and loving those that God has given to us, even if they're horrible bosses. I can trust that the shepherd who became the lamb and took away my sin will give me the power to suffer as I serve, like he did. Father, would you help us now? Help us to believe um, that Jesus is the suffering servant that you promised to send through Isaiah. And help us as we come to this table to not only hear of his suffering in our place, but to taste and see, to hold and smell, and to know um, that the Lamb of God was slain for the sin of our insubordination. And as we come to this table to feed on Jesus by faith, 
would you strengthen us with the power of the spirit of the suffering servant Jesus. Strengthen us to go into our workplaces this week and to let others see, wow, how is it that you can serve and suffer the way you do? It's only because someone has done that for me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.